But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, that is all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So we have a long passage, but we also have a very exciting passage because it starts off with a prison break. Peter is in prison and he miraculously escapes. And anytime I think about prison break, I think about uh, movies. I think about the movie Shawshank Redemption with a guy lifting his hands in the air in the rain, suddenly free after being, um, you know, wrongfully imprisoned. I think about the movie The Rock with Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage as a scientist, <laughs> how they do a reverse prison break and try and break into Alcatraz. And when you look at these fictional portrayals, what you notice is they tend towards extremes, extreme crimes, extreme behavior, extreme personalities. But when you look at real life prisoners and you hear what they talk about from their experience, one of the most challenging parts about being in prison is the monotony, the same thing over and over again. 
And it's captured in this phrase, do the time, don't let the time do you. Now this feeling of feeling trapped, I think is something that we can all relate to, this feeling of monotony being stuck. And the first time I really remember feeling like this was when I was a kid, I used to get um, sleep paralysis. And the first time it happened to me, I had no idea what was going on. And sleep paralysis is where you're kind of lying in bed, sound asleep, and all of a sudden your mind wakes up. And you can see the room around you, but you cannot move your body. You try to move your arm, you can't move it. You try to kick your leg, you can't do it. And you try to scream, but nothing comes out. And the first time it happened to me, I thought I was <laughs> being possessed by a demon. And I thought, like, my life was over. So I started screaming for my mom. And eventually, I guess it worked. And my mom came running in and go, Fred, 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 what is it? And then at that point, I could move. And I went, um, nothing. <laughs> I'll see you later. Right? But it doesn't have to be uh, that dramatic. This feeling of feeling trapped can hit us all over the place. If you're a student, you go into school, you see who your classmates are, and you go, oh, no. This kid is in my class. And then your last name begins with K. His last name begins with L. And you know you got to sit next to him every day, every class for the entire year. You're like, I'm stuck. And then you go, well, at least I'm in sixth grade. And then you realize you're going to be there for two more years. And you might sit next to this kid every day for the next three years. Maybe you got a job that you don't like because it keeps you so busy. And you go, I got to get out of this job. But the problem is you're trapped. Because it keeps you so busy, you don't have time to look for another job, so you end up staying in this job forever and ever. Maybe you bought an apartment, it was a little bit too expensive, the market turned down, now you owe a mortgage on a place that is worth less than what you paid for it. And the toughest, of course, is relationships. We've all been in relationships long enough, whether by blood or by oath, where we're around the same people a lot, and the things <laughs> that drive you crazy about that person, now they really drive you crazy. And it doesn't take a lot. It's just like a look. And you know the seven paragraphs that lie behind the look. And you go, mm. And then the most like, frustrating part is you look at yourself and you realize, like, oof, no matter how many times you ask me to do this or be like this. I just can't do it. I've tried. And so you feel trapped. You feel stuck. You feel like you can't get out. And this passage starts with a real prison, and it goes on to give us a key for how to get out of this kind of trapped, stuck situation. So before we look at that, why don't we lift up a quick word of prayer, and then we'll go into it. God, we just thank you so much for uh, giving us this time to just quiet our hearts and this world, this city is so quick, it's so pushy, it's so much like being tossed about uh, in the ocean, uh, battered to the left and to the right by the waves that keep coming. Uh, my prayer for now is very simple. Just silence all the other things that are going on in our hearts and our lives and fulfill your promise that if we draw close to you, you will draw close to us. We want to feel your presence. We want to hear your voice. We want you to fill our hearts. We want you to clear away all of the junk that's in our lives that keeps us feeling like we're stuck, that we're trapped, and instead fill us with the freedom and the power that comes from your spirit. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we're in Acts chapter 5, and throughout the last couple months, we've been going through the book of Acts. And Acts as a genre is historical narrative, which means you can slice it in many different ways and kind of find a common thread. One of the first ways you can look at it is it's a story about the flowering of the Spirit. Before this, you have the Gospels, you have Jesus 
embodying God's presence with hands and with feet. But once he ascends to heaven, the Spirit is unleashed, and we begin to chronicle the different things that the Spirit does. When the Spirit first came, tongues of fire fell on the apostles, and they're able to speak different languages. These cowardly men are turned into brave, courageous men, and they're able to preach the gospel in languages they didn't know. A couple chapters earlier, they're walking along. They see a man who's paralyzed, and they say, I don't have any money, but what I have, I give to you. Stand up and walk. And all of a sudden, we see the Spirit is also able to do miraculous healing. One way to look at the book of Acts is a story of the flowering of the Spirit's power. But you can also look at it as social history. Later on in these verses, we hear something pretty uh, amazing from 2,000 years away, which is Jesus is not unique. The disciples are not unique. There were plenty of revolutionaries around before Jesus and plenty of followers that were around. Gamaliel, the Pharisee who stands up, mentions too. He mentions Thutis. And Thutis was around, around about... Well, there's a couple different Thutises, but the most famous Thutis died in 44 AD. And he was known for portraying himself as a second Moses. And as Gamaliel tells us, he gathered 400 men and goes, I will be the next Moses. I will lead you into freedom. And to prove it, let's go over to the Jordan River. And so he tried to lead a group of 400 men to the Jordan River, and he was going to say, watch this, and try to split it so that they could walk on dry ground. But before he did that, he was killed and murdered. And his 400 uh, followers disappeared. They came to nothing. Then you have Judas the Galilean. In 6 BC, there was a census that was called, and everybody had to go back to their hometown. This was a census that Joseph and Mary heard that caused them to go back to Bethlehem. And this was the trigger for Judas saying, we are not citizens of Rome. If you are true Israel, do not take part in the census. Stop paying your taxes. Let's revolt. And a lot of people look at him as a starter of the zealots, but eventually he also died, and his following came to nothing. And if you look throughout Acts, Luke is also setting up the story of the church in a similar way. It starts with 12 apostles, and then you get numbers along the way. First it grew to 3,000, then it grew to 5,000. This is a movement that is far superior than anything that we've seen before. But Acts chapter 5, the passage that we have, is special. It's unique because it tells us something else about what is going on. It gives you a deep inside glance at the human motivations that are driving Jesus' enemies and that are also driving Jesus' followers. In verse 17, you see that the Sadducees are driven by jealousy. In verse 28, they say the apostles should not teach because they keep making them culpable for Jesus' death. They're worried about their public image. And then you hear in verse 26 that the soldiers are afraid to be rough with the disciples because they're afraid of the crowd. They're motivated by jealousy, they're motivated by their image, and they're motivated by the crowd. We just had a, um, a baby, like uh, three weeks ago, which, you know, they're a potato, so they don't do anything, and you just face them the opposite direction, which is great, because then you can just watch all these movies that are wildly inappropriate for kids, <laughs> but you just go, this is great. And one of the movies I rewatched was the movie Iron Man, and I was like, I remember when this movie first came out, it was amazing. And I was shocked because Tony Stark, like the leader of technology, has a flip phone from Verizon. And I was like, oh, man, even Tony Stark didn't have an iPhone yet. And all of us pretty much are old enough to remember a time where these social media, these iPhone things did not exist. But it still does not keep it from infecting our minds. And the truth for you guys is uh, you will only know a world that are infiltrated with phones. But as you think about it, jealousy, public image, crowd is the way that this stuff functions. 
the advertising is so good on these social media platforms that the moment I say to my wife, I want this, it shows up not only in my feed, it shows up in her feed. And we're convinced that somebody is listening to us. And then we start getting mad until we look at the advertisement and go, oh, that's great. I, I think I'll buy that. It's so good. But the problem is the way that they sell it to you is it makes you feel like you're constantly behind in life. Oh, if you were really on top of your business, you would already have this thing, jealousy. Not only that, but this stuff is infiltrated with filters and the most extreme examples. Oh, here's a coat you might like on a six foot two guy with like <laughs> broad shoulders and a skinny waist. And then when I look in the mirror, I'm like, this is not what I was hoping to buy. You are infiltrated with this image and then you become obsessed with your public image. You go, gosh, if I could just make this outward appearance right, then something else would be better. And over the last couple of years, one of the most startling things to happen is the rise of TikTok. So with Facebook, with Instagram, what you saw was controlled by who you followed, right? Your friends, and people that you chose to follow. TikTok is a completely different animal. It shows you the most popular video, video regardless, and you are forced to follow the tastes of the crowd, and this type of algorithm has infiltrated into the other social media platforms through reels or whatever. So we're constantly being bombarded with images that are better than us, with uh, advertisements that make us feel like we're behind in life, with the tastes of the crowd that make us feel like this is what I should like. Jealousy, public image, and crowd. And even though these things might seem like disparate things or separate things, Peter, the apostle, when he talks about them, he groups them under one. These are the things that happen to you when you obey man. These are the things that happen to you when you are enslaved by the crowd. These are the things that happen to you when your most important priority in life is how can I please the people around me? And when you first think of it, you might go, well, what's so wrong with that? I want people around me to be happy. I want them to be liked. But when you reflect on it, you realize that there's certain downfalls to that. The first downfall that came to my mind is you're always chasing a moving target. You're always trying to please the people around you, but they keep changing their minds on what they like. I'll tell you an example. 2015, I came back from Berlin, and I was like, I need to get a good pair of jeans. All the jeans I had, we'd washed like 10 times, and then they start getting holes in all the you know, wrong places. And I was like, I'm going to invest in a good pair of jeans. So I did all this research. I looked at all these different places and I decided on Japanese selvage denim. I go, if I get these jeans, these will be the last pair of jeans I'll ever need in my entire life. So I went to the store. I went to buy them with Jen. I go, okay, I want these jeans. And she goes, those jeans are skinny jeans. I go, yeah, 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 yeah. But skinny jeans, everyone's wearing skinny jeans. And she's like, first of all, um, you got big legs. Second of all, <laughs> this is not going to be popular for a long time. I go, Jen, please, just let me do me. I know what I like. So I bought these skinny jeans, and lo and behold, nobody wears skinny jeans. I wear baggy pants only, and this nice pair of Japanese selvage denim is just hanging in my closet doing nothing. When you try to please the people around you or keep up with the people around you, you're always chasing a moving target. But the other problem with living for the people around you is the demands that they have are inexhaustible and sometimes they're incommensurable. As I mentioned, we have a three-week-old and as I mentioned, he's a potato. He just wants three things, feed me, change me, and hold me. And it should be pretty easy to kind of fulfill those needs, but this kid is relentless. It's like Rocky Four facing the Russian. He just keeps coming and coming and coming. So at all hours of the night, he'll start crying. One of us has to get sleep, so the other one picks him up. And then you go, okay, fine, I can handle it. And then at 3 o'clock in the morning, Arlo wakes up. She goes, 
my stomach hurts. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm already holding a baby. She goes, can I sit in the other arm? <laughs> and so here I am holding like two kids at three in the morning and I go, this is not life. <laughs> this is not <laughs> how life should be. When you live to please the people around you, you just realize I cannot do it. And this is where you get to the most insidious thing about this. When you live your life to please other people, you are bound by the power of man. There's a story that I first heard from Steve Harvey about fleas in a jar, right? Fleas can naturally jump 36 inches into the air, but when you trap it into a jar and screw the lid on, at first it keeps going <coughs> and bumping into the top. But over time, it gets a headache and you realize, okay, this is not gonna be worth my time and adjusts the jump to just under the height of the lid. And what happens is even when you remove the lid, the flea only jumps that high and if these fleas have kids, they only see their parents doing this, and the kids only jump that high, even though genetically they're able to jump 36 inches. When you live to please the people around you, the world of man becomes your only world. And when you look for relief, the only place you can look is the world of man. What do I need to get, help me get unstuck? I need more time. I need more money. I need better relationships. I need better technology. I need better drugs, or whatever else the case might be. This world of just trying to please the uh, people around you, which seems so harmless at the beginning, can eventually lead you to a place where you feel trapped, where you feel stuck, where you feel like you can't get out of it. And it's in the midst of this world that Peter gives us the key out. In verse 29, he says, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. This simple decision reveals the motivation that caused the apostles to transform in the way that they did. A couple chapters ago, even in the book of Luke, Peter knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that he was the Savior of the world, but he was too afraid of the world of man, so he denied Christ. At the beginning of the book of Acts, they knew that Jesus had rose from the dead, but they were scared, so they were sitting in a room unsure of what to do. And this did not change until they made up their minds to say, I will follow God first, and I'll let the other stuff fall where it needs to fall. This main decision will prioritize the other decisions, give me wisdom for the other decisions, but will form the center of everything else. And it's strange because the wisdom of man is not bad. It tells you you need to take care of yourself. It tells you to save your money. It tells you to do all these things. But it's like trying to give advice on how to lose weight without mentioning diet and, and exercise. It misses the main part. It tells you how to get a faster car by looking at paint color. It doesn't talk about the engine. The engine that frees us from this trap is obedience to God. And look at the things that happen in this chapter where before Peter had been denying Christ, now he is preaching boldly in front of everybody, even to the very people who arrested Jesus. Where before they were cowering in these rooms, unsure of what to do by verse 42, they're proclaiming loudly in the temple and other people's homes. If they had just stayed trapped in the world of man, this story starts off in a prison. And if they're in the world of man, the best they can hope for is a lawyer who can get them out. But instead, what happens? Something miraculous happens, something you could not have planned for. An angel opens a gate and lets them out. They are faced in front of a hostile jury. And if you're trapped in the world of man, the best you can hope for is to give the speech of your life, to change your mind, to help them, to convince them, to let you go. 
But that's not what happens. Peter doubles down on what he says, makes them even madder, and something miraculous happens. One of his enemies stands up and starts defending them and says, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might be found even opposing God. The key, the power of making obedience to God the center of your life is you are no longer bound by the power of man. You now have access to the power of God. When you obey him, time, money, sense don't matter. God can overcome all of that. You're stuck in a prison. An angel can come and let you out. You're struggling with resources. He will provide. When you make God the center of your life, the power of God suddenly becomes available to you. And this is the pattern you see throughout Scripture. In Exodus, when the Israelites were under slavery and they were crying out to God, God said, paint some lamb's blood on your door. And when they did that, they were set free. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They ate heavenly food from the ground. There is a guy named Naaman who was a Syrian general in the Book of Kings. He was a popular general. He was a great general, but he had leprosy. He was stuck in an inescapable disease. He went to the prophet Elisha. Elisha said, wash seven times. And by obeying God, he was freed from his trapped circumstance. And it said he had skin like the skin of a newborn baby and that he was clean. And you see that pattern over and over again. If you're stuck, what do you do? You obey God, you're set free, and the power of God now becomes available to you. I don't know what all of you guys are going through. Many of you are probably stuck in a situation like I described earlier, but the key that this verse hands to you is put God first, prioritize God, and let the chips fall where they may. Now, that's all fine, but when you get down to into the like, nitty-gritty, you're kind of like, okay, so what? So, for example, my daughter is four and a half, and she's learning the catechism, right? I guess this is a question-and-answer format. I think she's either learning it here or at school. And one of the questions is, how can you glorify God? And she answers, by loving him and doing what he commands. And then I press a little bit further. I go, okay, so what do you think God is commanding you to do this week? And she said, hmm. She thought, she goes, go to school? I go, okay. That sounds good, but anything else? And, you know, you're hoping, like, you know, love mommy and daddy or be generous or be thankful. And she sits and she waits. She goes, hmm, so anything else? And she goes, maybe wear a sweater. <laughs> I was like, yeah, God probably wants you to wear a sweater. When you get into the nitty-gritty, actually applying what this means can be a very difficult thing. So I just want to give three quick encouragements. Some of us are already sitting on a specific command, and you know what it is. Every time you pray, like you see a person's face in your mind and God is saying, hey, email that person, see how they're doing. But you just forget or you know that it's been too long. You know they sent you an email like six months ago and you have yet to respond and you come up with all these reasons not to do it. Maybe you know that you got to switch jobs because the one you're in is toxic. You know the one that you're in is going to keep you further and further from your family and from investing in your relationship with God Maybe some of you are in a situation where you know you need to get some counseling. You are stuck. You need to talk to somebody, but you're embarrassed about it. Whatever that situation might be, act on it. My daughter has a saying from school, which I love and use against her all the time, which is slow obedience is no obedience. <laughs> so I'm like, Arlo, can you brush your teeth? Five minutes later, I say slow obedience is no obedience, <laughs> and then she goes to do it. 
The typical example of this is Jonah. God gave him a specific command. He turned away. Some of you know what that command is. Do it and do it soon. Others of you, it's more a general lifestyle thing. You've incorporated as much of God's command into your life as possible. You live a lifestyle of prayer. You live a lifestyle of generosity. You know how to love your neighbors. But the feeling of this type of obedience is that you're swimming against the tide. It's like trying to eat ice cream on a hot summer day. It melts all over your hand. It's like trying not to fall into the temptation of looking at your phone in the middle of the night to see what time it is. This type of obedience is so difficult because... The world of man keeps pushing at you like a wave. Hey, look at this. Hey, do this. Hey, think about this. And unless you make a resolved decision, I will put God first, you'll quickly find yourself having no time for scripture, no time for prayer, no time for fellowship. And the last thing I wanted to say as an encouragement is to the church. Not only do you have to obey God in your individual life, we as a church have to obey God. And I think there's a couple things that we need to be doing or on the lookout for. The first, don't be on autopilot. Just because we've done this thing this way for this amount of time doesn't mean this is the way we should keep doing things moving forward. And the other part of it, don't think just in terms of the resources that we have. Well, we only have this many people. Well, we only have this much money. When we put obedience to God first, he will provide all the other stuff that we need. So to end, I'll just um, quote this famous hymn. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Okay, let's pray. I think the toughest part about this um, message is uh, not that we don't know that we should obey God, but we're not sure what the thing is to do. So before we um, sing some songs of worship, uh, why don't we take a little bit of time? And if you're able to do that, maybe you can also start praying for our church. God, is there something good news should do? that we are not doing, that we should get ready for? Are, have we been coasting? Are we on autopilot? Are we just taking for granted what sh we should do because it's easy? Or is there some greater, deeper challenge that lies for us? So why don't we pray like that for a little bit and then uh, we'll continue to reflect through song. <laughs>